So good morning. Um, thanks for letting me say a few words about Paul, Saul. Um, and as usual, God's timing is perfect because it was just last week that we celebrated the feast of the conversion of St. Paul. So hopefully Paul is on our minds right now between doing the lesson and hearing all the wonderful readings from Corinthians and hearing all the wonderful homilies. So let's hope we're all feeling a little closer to Paul before we start. <clears throat> I'd like to start with a prayer. And it's actually sort of a poem or a prayer, but it's from St. John Henry Newman, The Mission of My Life. I know a lot of you are familiar with this prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, amen. God has created me to do him some definite service. He has committed some work to me which he has not committed to another. I have my mission. I may never know it in this life, but I shall be told it in the next. I am a link in a chain, a bond of connection between persons. He has not created me for naught. I shall do good. I shall do his work. I shall be an angel of peace, a preacher of truth in my own place, while not intending it, if I but do keep his commandments. Therefore, I will trust in him. Whatever I am, I can never be thrown away. If I am in sickness, my sickness may serve him. In perplexity, my perplexity may serve him. If I am in sorrow, my sorrow may serve him. He does nothing in vain. He knows what he is about. He may take away my friends. He may throw me among strangers. He may make me feel desolate, make my spirit sink, hide my future from me. Still he knows what he is about. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Okay, last week we heard about Manasseh, the king of Judah, who was raised to love God but turned his back on him in favor of the pagan practices of his time. Eventually, his sinful ways and unwise, unwise allegiances landed him in a prison cell. And in his darkness, he turned to God, repented, and went on to become the person God intended him to be. This week we hear the story of Saul, a man who also loved God, was raised to love God, and unlike Manasseh, remained faithful to all his laws. Yet somehow, he found a way to use God's law to persecute others, to persecute Jesus' followers. Like Manasseh, Saul would experience darkness, and like Manasseh, Saul would experience God's light. And there was a lot of scripture in this lesson, and I could have given you more, so you're welcome. But I feel like you have a good idea of Saul's history in the faith. But just a summary, he was a devout Jew from Tarsus and by all accounts, an avid, avid observer of the law. He had even studied under Gamaliel, one of the predominant Pharisees of the day. To the outside world, he would have looked like someone who loved God. And I know in his mind, he believed he had a heart for God, but it was state, his state of mind and his heart that was the problem that day on the road to Damascus. Jesus had been crucified in Jerusalem, and even after his death, his disciples continued to pre preach his message in the streets. Jesus is the Son of God, and Jesus is risen. Someone had tr some had tried to silence them, even bringing them before the Council of Israel, but it was complicated. Even Gamaliel, Saul's teacher, said, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of men, it will fail. 
but if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Saul's sense of outrage reached a boiling point in Acts 7 when Stephen was brought before the council and repeated the lies and the blasphemy of the disciples. And even worse, dared to call the Jewish leaders to account. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. Can you imagine hearing that if you were a faithful and revered Jewish leader? Saul was so angry that he stood by and watched an execution. Some scripture says approved of an execution. Saul decided then and there that something must be done. Clearly this movement was not going to go away on its own. Daniel Webster once said, a strong conviction that something must be done is the parent of many bad measures. And that was the path Saul took, a series of very bad measures, including dragging men and women from their homes, torture, imprisonment, and more. This was the state of Saul's mind and his heart on the road to Damascus that day. He was a God-fearing, proud, stiff-necked, hard-hearted man on a mission, a mission to lay waste to the church. Have you ever met a man or a woman on that kind of a mission? Have you ever resembled that man or woman? We know Saul's story doesn't end there. God had another mission in mind for him, as he tells Ananias in Acts chapter 9. This man is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. Saul had to be transformed from a man on his own mission to a man on God's mission. But unlike Manasseh, Saul wasn't exactly on his knees begging for help. Not God's help, anyway. An intervention was needed to humble Saul, to wake him up to the truth, and most importantly, to change his heart. The different accounts of Saul's experience on the road share the same key elements. And I don't know, he saw a great light in the sky, which caused him to fall to the ground, and he heard the voice of the risen Jesus speaking to him. I remembered when I was reading this my Sunday school days from my little early childhood. And I don't know if this happened to you, but I remember there was a horse in that story. Does anybody remember the horse? I remember Saul was riding his horse and the voice of God boomed in Saul and knocked Saul off his horse. I thought that was a bit of a better story, frankly. And I was disappointed. The horse made it so much more dramatic and really that fall would have been what Paul deserved. Saul, forgive me if I call him Saul or Paul and mess it up, but he was one man, one man with two identities, which we'll find. Either way, the effect is the same. The intense light was a sign to Saul that he was in the presence of God. And that divine presence physically drove him to his knees. The light of God, the presence of God was with him. And then the voice of the risen Jesus spoke, called out to him. It's as if God was saying, I am here, I am your God. And behold my son. This was the truth that the disciples had been preaching. Jesus was the son of and Jesus was risen. And the voice of Jesus calling Saul by name had the desired effect on his heart. Think of all the times in scripture where Jesus calls us by name, calls his chosen ones by name. After Peter's betrayal, 
Simon, Simon, son of God, do you love me? Son of John, sorry. And in the garden to Mary Magdalene, who mistook him for a gardener, and said, where have you taken my Lord? And Jesus' simple, beautiful answer to her, Mary, Mary. And now he challenges Saul. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Have you ever used that tactic to correct your children or a good friend by just saying, what are you doing? Stop. Stop, take a minute and think about what you're doing. Has anyone ever helped you in that way? Helped you see more clearly? This is the gift that Christ gives to Saul. Blindness and an awakening. Despite all his knowledge of the law and all his righteous observances, he had not been able to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. He had been blind, but now he would see with new eyes. From the moment the scales fell from Paul's eyes, and now we're going to call him Paul, we know two things. Number one, he considered himself a new creation. As we read in Galatians 2, 19 through 20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. Secondly, he was all in, right? He was all in. I call it, put me in coach. He went immediately to work for Christ. Ananias encouraged him, for you will be his witness before all who have seen and heard. Now why delay? Get up and have yourself baptized and your sins washed away, calling upon his name. And that's exactly what Paul did. He went from being a destroyer of the faith to its greatest missionary, literally from darkness to light. And what was his mission? What was Paul's mission? Countless scholars and authors have studied Paul and wondered over his motives, what drove him, what he was trying to say. But for me, it has always come down to one overarching mission. Paul was a builder. He built up the body of Christ. He went from laying waste to laying a foundation. Now I looked up the word to build in the dictionary and here's what I found to form by ordering and uniting materials by gradual means into a composite whole, and then to build up, to make a person or their body stronger. Paul's materials were the cornerstone, which was Jesus Christ himself. And the stones, the bricks, and the mortars were the faithful men and women of the early churches. For we are God's fellow workers you are God's field, God's building. Like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building upon it. That's 1 Corinthians 3, 9 through 11. The composite whole was the universal body of Christ. This concept is central to Paul's theology and mission. For just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And that's 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13. A lot of great stuff in Corinthians, right, ladies? A lot of great stuff. And true to his calling to bring the gospel to all nations, Paul did not exclude anyone from the body or leave any materials unused. He drew everyone in 
You are no longer strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the holy ones and the members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself as the cornerstone. And that's Ephesians. See, I tricked you. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. And how did he build up the body? Through tireless work, constant encouragement. Though he traveled far and wide and endured many hardships, he still found time to visit and to revisit and to send reinforcements, to settle disputes, and most notably to reach out through the written word. He had one simple but very important message. Christ is in us, all of us, and we are all one in Christ. It was the ultimate measure of faith for Paul. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Jesus Christ is in you? If he is not, then you have failed the test. And that's 2 Corinthians 13, 5. So what does this mean? What can we learn from St. Paul's conversion and from his mission? I can only tell you what spoke to me in the hope that it speaks to you in some way. This journey with Paul caused me to ask myself two questions. Number one, how can I be sure that I am on the right mission? Number two, how am I helping to build up the body of Christ? I doubt any, me or any of us will have a radical experience like St. Paul during his lifetime, during our lifetime. The point is that God rarely calls us in that way not in the storm or the earthquake or the burning bush. And even when we think we're hearing from God, the revelations seem to come to us in bits and pieces, like signs on a path lighting our way. How do we receive these signs? Archbishop Hartmeyer gave a homily a couple of weeks ago, which I really loved, and I'm gonna borrow throughout this last little bit a few words from him. Um, He said, God speaks to us in silence. And how do I hear God in the silence? I begin with prayer. Prayer is the single most intimate way that God communicates with me. It is where I hear his still, small voice. If I want to discern my path, I have to continue to make time for prayer in my life. Time in the morning, time in the evening, time throughout the day. Time in my car, time wherever I am. My next resource is scripture. Archbishop Hartmeyer also said, the word of God is alive. It's life-giving. A single word can change a life. How many times have you had a piece of scripture leap off the page and touch your heart? I must continue to look to the word of God for guidance and inspiration to ponder the daily readings, to participate in Bible study, to listen to Christian authors and speakers, priests and pastors who illuminate the meaning of the word of God in my life. And lastly, I must seek the guidance in my relationships with my sisters in Christ. And you guys all have that same gift. God speaks through the wisdom of others in the faith. Can't tell you how many times a sister has nudged me gently sometimes not so gently, right back on the right path. 
I need to nurture these relationships. We all need to do the same. And like John Henry Newman, I must accept the fact that there are things I may never know and that revelation will come in his time and not in mine. So how am I helping to build the body of Christ? When I was writing this commentary, I kept thinking about two things, um, random thoughts that came into my mind. One was a sign uh, which sits outside of a camp for troubled teens um, in my, near my house in Cape Cod. I drive by it every summer all day. It's a quote from Frederick Douglass and it reads, better to build strong children than to repair broken men. It's a great quote. The other thing that I kept thinking about was a television show that my kids used to watch when we lived in England. It was called Bob the Builder. Does anybody know about Bob the Builder? <laughs> he had a little yellow hard hat. My, my son had the boots. He was so cute. But Bob and his crew used to go around to this little town, little tiny town, and they would fix things. Usually a broken pipe or a hole in the wall, but sometimes they fixed problems and they fixed relationships and they fixed other things. Such a good lesson for a child. And Bob had a theme song and the theme song went, Bob the Builder, working hand in hand. Can we fix it? Yes, we can. And you may wonder why this is relevant, and I don't blame you. I think it was in my mind because I believe that I am, and you are, we are all participating in one of the most important building projects that there is, which is to build up my own family with the greater goal of extending that time, effort, and care to building up the greater human family of God, the body of Christ. But God is the architect, and I am only a builder and sometimes not that great of a builder. And because I'm not perfect, my part of the job will involve inevitably repair and mending, lots of mending. In our own families, we strive to build our house on a solid rock so it can withstand the rain and the winds and the floods. That's from Matthew 7. Whatever form your family takes and whatever part you play, whether you're a mother of children, young or old, whether you're a daughter, a niece, a granddaughter, a sister, an aunt, a wife, a caregiver. The most important thing that you can do for God is to never give up on that building project. Put all your efforts into building a strong house, but give equal effort to the leaks in the roof and the cracks in the walls, to the broken relationship, to the unhealed wound. You can't always fix it like Bob, but you can put it before the greatest architect and you can pray for guidance. And finally, I need to treat my neighbor, my community, my world as family because they are part of the body of Christ. And the body, like the house, is in need of repair. There are broken families, broken children, broken men, as Frederick Douglass said. And I'm going to borrow a few last words from... Archbishop Hartmeyer, Jesus, has, Jesus said, God has sent me to bring good news to the poor. And who are the poor? Not just the physically poor, but the poor in spirit. Our world is full of emotional and spiritual poverty. You and I are poor in spirit. What is needed is a conversion 
from apathy and a hardness of heart to a spirit of compassion. And that's the end quote from him. So, so many hard hearts out there right now. My constant prayer, my constant prayer is not to have one. And if the word of God can change a life and can give life, the words of man can do so much damage. Let me not harden my heart against my neighbor, but let me use the word of God, which brings life to build up, to help up my neighbor. Because if Christ is in me, then Christ is in everyone I meet. And sometimes he is hungry and he needs to be fed. He is thirsty and he needs a drink. He is a stranger and he needs to be welcomed. He is naked and he needs to be clothed. He is sick and he needs to be visited. He is in prison and we need to go to him. And that is from Matthew 25, 35 through 36. I would like to close with a prayer called a family blessing. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Lord of all, bless our families. Be they formed by blood or circumstance. Make them holy. May we find you in our relationships, in our marriages, in our families, in our households, in our communities, in our global humanity. May we look across all that divides us and see family and embrace as a family does and love as a family ought to. For where two or three gather in your name, there you are. Amen. <laughs> Thank you. Now, I have a reflection song from the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi, and Francis also received a call from God as he was praying in a small church, St. Damien's, which was in ruins. He asked God, what should I do with my life? And when he was looking up at the cross, Jesus spoke to him, and he said, Francis, go and rebuild my church, which, as you can see, is falling down. Francis rebuilt the church, but he gradually realized Christ was asking him to rebuild a lot more the greater institution, the human institution of the church. Francis was a tireless builder. And this is his most beloved prayer. Bear with me.
Sorry, it was